Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome to this month's episode of the AMR Studios. So this month, we're lucky to have an interview that Eva did with Dr. Yuan Bengtsson Palme, who's an assistant professor at Salganska Academy at the University of Gothenburg. He works with the CARE Center, the Center for Antibiotic Resistance Research in Gothenburg. And they talk a bit about his work and what he's done so far. So I will let you listen to it. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, everyone. So today we have with us Johan Bexton Palme coming directly from Gothenburg University to give a seminar here at UAC. And yeah, we're super excited to hear what he has to tell us about his work. Uh, Johan, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, thank you for inviting me to be here, first of all. So my name is Johan Bengtsson Palme. I, as you said, work at the University of Gothenburg and at the Center for Antibiotic Resistance Research, um, which is a similar center to the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. And I work with several different things, um, but the most prominent of those things is antibiotic resistance. And particularly, I'm studying antibiotic resistance and the role of the environment in the development of uh, antibiotic resistance. Um, Then I also work a lot with interactions in microbial communities and how microbial communities retain their stability over time. And linking all these together, aside from the antibiotic and antibiotic exposure part, is also that I'm working with developing methods to study these ph- phenomena, uh, primarily bioinformatics methods. So I have a background in bioinformatics and then have then sort of stepped back a little bit into, um, into the experimental field. Yeah, so we, we are very happy to have you with us here because in the podcast we have mentioned many times about this one health concept of antimicrobial antibiotic resistance, that is the uh, human health, animal health and the environment, but we had not yet had anyone that actually is working directly on the environment role into this problem. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit of your path to AMR? What did you do at the beginning of your career and how did you got into AMR studies? Yeah, so the thing is that I didn't really start from the typical point of view with antibiotic resistance. I didn't start from a medical point of view or from a in bacterial evolution point of view, which I think is the way that a lot of people take into the scientific and medical side of antibiotic resistance research. So I started off rather from the other side with looking at microbial communities. And I did a master's project that related to toxicology and how microbial communities reacted to toxicants. And through that, I got in contact with my becoming PhD supervisor, Professor Joachim Larsson, who studied antibiotic resistance in the environment. And through him and through that PhD, I got into the resistance field. So I really have had to learn everything about resistance and resistance mechanisms. Um, But I've taken from the beginning a perspective on how does this actually affect the microbial community. And my original background is molecular biology, but then I sort of ended up in bioinformatics and doing large-scale analysis of DNA sequencing data, which led to starting looking at communities and studying a bit of ecology, how could communities interact, and then into the antibiotic resistance. So the environmental side came very naturally there. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, tell us uh, perhaps a little bit about the projects you're working on right now uh, that had to do with the environment and AMR and how the communities come into play as well? Yeah, so we recently got funding for a big collaborative project 
on monitoring of antibiotic resistance in the environment. And this project has the acronym EMBARC uh, for establishing a monitoring baseline for antibiotic resistance in key environments. And this is a DAPI AMR funded project with six different PIs, of which I am the coordinator. And then we have partners in France, in Germany, China, and Pakistan. And the entire idea of this program is to standardize monitoring and establishing what is a natural amount of resistance in different environments. And the standardization part is really about trying to make different proposed protocols for monitoring comparable so that you could use more data and still say something about the global picture. And I mean, we, we have a lot of ideas of how to do that, but getting into the details will take a half an hour. Um, <laughs> then I also work on the more antibiotic resistance development side, looking at, for example, concentrations of antibiotics that select for antibiotic resistance, um, concentrations of antibiotics that can drive horizontal gene transfer. Um, and then I have my pet project at hand right now is an extension of the work I did in Joe Handelsman's lab as a postdoc in, in the United States, uh, where we're looking at which genes that are important for colonization of a niche and invasion of an established community. And the twist to this, which links it back to antibiotic resistance, is that we also expose these communities to different antibiotics. So we'll look at sort of the interaction effect of having to invade a community and then also being exposed to antibiotics at the same time. And that could be, so for our audience to maybe feel a bit more familiar with this, it could be, for example, that you have your normal flora in your body, right? And then you get a pathogen that comes in and how that can take over the normal flora, in, invade, infect, and then survive or take over. And then that related with taking antibiotics or not. Is that, for example, an application or a, a way to see it? Yeah, so that would be the medical application mm -hmm. of it, that you have, a, you have a human intestinal flora, for example, and that's exposed to antibiotics. As, when you're taking a course of antibiotics, that's, that's going to be exposed, even if it's not actually the target of mm -hmm. the antibiotic, of course. And one thing that can happen there is that you get overgrowth of certain microorganisms. And we want to sort of look at like what kind of genes are important in these processes. Now, the community that we're dealing with is not the human community. It's a model community that was developed from soil. Mm -hmm. Um, so, it, But the nice thing, is it's, it's, it only contains three members, and all the members are genetically tractable, so we can, we can play around with their genetics. And the neat thing is that they interact, and we know that they interact in several ways. And since we know these interactions, we can also start looking at, if we take away these genes, what happens to the interactions? Mm -hmm. And the entire idea here is really that this is a model system for community interactions, just like E. coli is a model system for a bacterial cell. And we don't think that this encompasses all possible interactions in the real world, but as just as in the analogy to how much we know about bacterial metabolism from just studying one species, we think that studying this community can be extrapolated to a much larger set of communities. And of course, there's also work in trying to look at how does the things we find now actually play out in a full-scale soil community, 
which is harder to assess. But if you know exactly what the hypothesis is, it's much easier to design an experiment that measures that mm-hmm. as opposed to just openly sequencing soil, for example. Yeah, without uh, a hypothesis in mind or an idea what to look for. Very interesting. Uh, I want to backtrack a little bit towards the first project that you talked to us about, this monitoring of the of antibiotics or pharmaceuticals in the environment as well. So can you dwell a little bit more about why is this so important when it comes to AMR? Um, why environmental monitoring is important? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, this is this is one of the trickier questions. I mean, it's very obvious why you would like to monitor resistance in the human population, and particularly in hospital patients, because there's a, there's a pretty clear application to knowing what the resistance level is in different countries and at different hospitals. Uh, it's information that is useful for the hospitals themselves in their action plans. Um, monitoring the environment is more complicated in terms of what you want to get out of it. But one thing that I think is important is that you want to be able to see which are the important sources of resistant bacteria into the environment. And conversely, you also want to see which are the important exposure points where humans get exposed to resistant bacteria from the environment. Mm -hmm. Because both of those places would be potential arenas to intervene Uh, and try to either stop the flow of resistant bacteria into the environment or stop or limit the interactions that humans has with risk environments. Um, so that's one purpose of this. The second purpose here is that if you start looking at it over time, you can start to, just as you can see trends in the monitoring data from hospitals, you can start following that, oh, we have an, a trend of increasing resistance in this particular type of environment, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's useful to be able to see that, oh, the work that we're doing in clinics is not stopping environmental resistance or is stopping environmental resistance. I mean, it's this way to see that your interventions are working. Um, And finally, an ideal environmental monitoring program would also be able to pick up resistant threats that are not commonly occurring in clinical pathogens. So that we would be able to sort of get a early warning system. So, aha, this is something that is now increasing in animal populations. And it seems to be pretty potent in terms of resisting this particular antibiotic. That's probably something we should worry about in the clinics so that we can start looking for it systematically. Earlier, before it actually becomes either an outbreak or something bigger, right? Yeah. Hmm. The problem with that is that that's the very hardest part of the entire environmental monitoring framework, knowing what to look for when you're not exactly sure what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is, and this is one of the things that we want to be able to start doing within this Embark program. But I think that this is the hardest of the subtasks that we embark on. I'm also uh, curious about, um, because you're going to monitor the resistance, but is there going to be a way to also monitor the presence of the antibiotics in these environments that would potentially select or not select for the resistance in them? Actually, the the interesting thing is that as the program is written now, we're actually not that concerned with the antibiotics. We are focused on the resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, But from a policy point of view, I totally agree that we also want to look at the selective agents themselves, most prominently antibiotics, of course, um, because that's part of why it makes sense to monitor the environment. Mm-hmm. In some way, it also sort of falls into another into another bucket because it's a chemical you're looking for. Uh, so it's, it's a little different set of methods, but looking in the same samples would make a lot of sense. So it's not really 
within the framework of our program, but we're still interested in looking at it because it makes sense from a bigger picture point of view. And also, so our uh, listeners are a little bit more familiar with it. What kind of environments are we talking about? Tricky question. Actually, we're sort of looking at all the environments, but it's not feasible to look in all the environments in reality. So, I mean, the first thing that we want to do is to establish the methods we want to use and the methods we want to be able to compare between in a set of environments which we already know pretty well. Mm -hmm. So we're actually going to look at sewage treatment plants, even though I think this is a pretty overstudied environment in terms of resistance research. Mm -hmm. um, but we're still starting there because that gives us the opportunity to actually compare to previous work and look at, oh, okay, we get this, they get that. Actually, that's pretty much in line, so we can keep extrapolating to other environments based on this data. And then what we're going to do then is to start looking specifically at undersampled environments. So we're going to look at clean water environments, for example. We're going to look at soil that doesn't have any human impact. But the thing is that we're also going to compare this to an already existing body of metagenomic data that has already been sequenced and is publicly available in databases. Two of the co-PIs on this program are data crunchers. So a large part of their work in the program will be crunching all really available data to bring that into the bigger framework and being able to say something about a much larger number of samples than we could possibly have generated on our own in the program. So it, we start off by doing something simple and then we want to use the methodology we come up with from the simple system to extend it to understudied environments, which we will sample ourselves, and then all this material that is already existing, but bring it into this bigger framework. So as I understand, uh, the main methods would be based on bioinformatics and sequencing a lot of the DNA that is out there in this environment. That's one of the big things. We're also going to do qPCR, for example, because it's one of those things that have been proposed as a monitoring strategy, which I think could in the end be maybe the most viable strategy from an economic standpoint. We're going to do culturing, traditional uh, resistance phenotyping, and we're going to do functional metagenomics um, to be able to detect novel resistance genes. And also to compare that to bioinformatic methods for discovering new genes. There's an entire set of different work packages that come together here. But yes, sequencing will be one of the central points because that's also our window into this publicly available material. Mm -hmm. I see that it would be probably really good, for example, if in every given country there would be a center that can actually routinarily look for these things in, in different key environments, the same way that we have uh, laboratories that look at uh, clinical samples in this way, right? So to have like a database where we can monitor and have information about how things move from the community to the clinics to the environment and so on. And I hope that that comes in the future, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think the thing is that a lot of this work is or already being done, sort of. So if you look at, in Sweden, for example, we're looking at um, drinking water quality. That's a type of monitoring. I mean, we're, we're looking at bacteria in drinking water because we want to know if it's not potable, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's something we do, but we don't do it specifically for resistance. So what we want to be able to do in the end would be to say, here's a control point which we already work with. Can we just tweak that control point with some small changes and feed it into this bigger framework for resistance monitoring without too much work? And of course, that single little point wouldn't contain all the information 
that you would get from, for example, sequencing or large-scale qPCR or even large-scale culturing. But the idea is that if you provide that little puzzle piece into a framework which already has the standards for comparing, that still provides important information on, ah, the resistance levels in Uppsala are this at this particular day, mm-hmm. at this particular point. So it's it's really about trying to bring in different types of data into a bigger framework. That is already existing, so it should yeah, I mean, not where, take so much to implement. Where the data sort mm-hmm. of exists or where the data could easily be generated using protocols that already yeah, exist. Yeah, I understand. Really, really interesting. And hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> well, we hope so too. I mean, it's a it's a pretty big undertaking from a convincing people to do these small changes point of view. I mean, I realized that many of those protocols have been around for years. And now we're saying, oh, if you do these small changes, then you could feed that into a bigger database. And I can see how there could be reluctance to that, just even if it would be really small changes. Mm-hmm. Um, last question related to this project. How do you see that being implemented in developing countries where things, when it comes to monitoring, are a little bit more challenging than in other parts of the world? Yeah, so this is this is really why we won't end up suggesting everyone do sequencing because one of the constraints here is really resources. And we realize that the most interesting places to, to do monitoring in might not be the Western world, but might be communities where you have not as well-developed healthcare, you have not as well sanitary systems, uh, you don't have access to clean water to the same extent. I mean, we realize that this is probably one of the most important areas to do monitoring in. And the interesting thing is that's also where it's least likely to get implemented if it's expensive. So Mm -hmm. that's another reason for making it modular in this sense that you can plug in a little bit of data because you think a little bit of data that can be interpreted in a bigger framework is better than no data at all. So it's, it's part of the thinking that we want to have a bigger protocol where you can take a little part that fit your budget and fit your existing infrastructure and still plug that into something bigger that informs a picture that is larger than your little bubble at hand. Mm. So it's it's there, um, but I mean it's it's going to be a challenge. I mean everything is challenging when when the economy is scarce. So yeah, but it's the first start to put a foot there and see how it could work. So um, what do you think is missing in AMR research or? From your point of view, what would you like to see more track of or more money put into? Or it's something that people are not thinking so much about that we should be looking into. One thing that I think is missing in a large amount of the environmental research that is done in antibiotic resistance. I mean, I'm not going to talk too much about the more healthcare oriented side because that's really not my expertise area. Uh, But on the environmental side, I think one thing that is really missing is a thoughtfulness about uh, what the risks really are and what the risk means. So I've been reading several papers where you go out and you screen screen for resistance genes using some method in some type of environment. And then the conclusion is that we find resistance genes in this river and it's a risk. And there's no elaboration on what type of risk is that? And I mean, who is that a risk to? Because I mean... If you step, take a step back and look at what resistance means from an ecological perspective, it's almost like a resilience mechanism. I mean, maybe it's actually to some extent good that bacteria become resistant if there's antibiotics present because that makes it possible to survive and they perform some type of ecosystem function. So, I mean, it's it's not necessarily an environmental risk finding resistance genes. Um, so I think, I mean, what, what I would like to see is this 
just extending that thought, okay, so the risk is actually not primarily environmental. It, the risk is primarily a human health risk, although we are working in the environment. As I see it, the big risk picture is really that we select for resistant bacteria in the environment that somehow ends up with humans. But that also or need to take into account a lot of other factors, like what is the infectious dose of this bacteria? Maybe, I mean, we can detect this gene using a super sophisticated, very fine-tuned methods. But is that relevant? Maybe, I mean, the infectious dose, I mean, you would have to drink like 200 liters of seawater to actually get up to the infectious dose. Then that's not really relevant from a human health risk perspective. And I think that's very, very often lost in the discussion about environmental resistance. Um, so that's sort of, I think, the big missing component. Then, I mean, there's tons of other things that are poorly known, but that's more because research in the environmental resistance side is really just beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen this taking off in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so of course, there's a lot of things to, to look at already. And one thing that I'm excited about, which is a lot out of personal interest, but that is sort of what effects do these small concentrations of antibiotics have on other things than resistance development? So like, how does this affect as I said, the interactions in communities. Does this affect the ability of bacteria to invade a community? Because that's actually a property that is sort of related to pathogenicity. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if it turns out that you over time enrich for bacteria that are more resistant and also more aggressive in terms of invasive potential in a community, that invasive potential down the line sort of translates into being a more dangerous pathogen. Potentially more virulent yeah. and more, yeah. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a chain of event that is in any way proven, but I still mm -hmm. think it's interesting to start looking at those secondary effects of antibiotics that go beyond resistance development. But that's research that is, there's not a lot being done there. Um, since uh, the studies of the environment and this part of the One Health aspect of AMR is something that has come up in the later time. I'm curious to know what are the main challenges you have faced when you have to talk about this with people that are either coming from, you know, human health aspect or animal health aspect. What are like main things that you have found being harder for you to communicate, to make them understand or to even find like a common ground with other uh, scientists and researchers? You mean in, in terms of explaining environmental antibiotic resistance? Yes, and their role in AMR mm -hmm. and how this is important and it should not be left forgotten when you're thinking about both human health and animal health. In my experience, it has never been a big problem talking to people who come from the animal side because they already have a slightly more outsider perspective in a way. It might it might be connected to the people I talk to, but I, I, I think there's already an openness to that. Okay, yeah, animal plays a role. Environment seems likely that it would also play a role. Um, I think it's a little bit more stubborn with some people, but they're becoming quite few, actually, on the medical side, which really would like to relegate environmental aspects very, very far down the priority list. But I think there's a reckoning of that even if, and I consider this myself, I consider what we can do in the medical setting as the most important arena still. It's the place where we really can do a direct intervention that affects humans in the short term. So I still think that's probably warranted to do most of the work there in a the sense. But I think there's a growing sense that you also have to look at these other aspects because if you only focus on the medical side and the healthcare use of antibiotics, 
you, you lose the animal side and you lose all of this environmental aspects which are related to that in the environment you have a huge diversity of bacteria. And it looks like a lot of the resistance factor we're facing in clinics now come from environmental bacteria. Mm -hmm. So if there is an exchange of genetic material between the environment and human pathogens, it would be very short-sighted to invest all the resources in preventing resistance in hospitals and in the community setting and just forget about that antibiotics end up somewhere. We have production plants that spit out antibiotics from their production effluents uh, for the pr from the production waste effluent at almost therapeutical levels sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's it's obvious that you have that part of selection as well. I mean, you, you also use antibiotics in agriculture, like spraying apple orchards with um, uh, streptomycin. I mean, that's, that's something that's being done. And that's, of course, because there's a reason to it. But at the same time, that's also selection pressure in the environment. Yeah. And also, I mean, even if you think about connecting human health to environment, the same waste that comes from hospitals has been shown to also sometimes have higher levels of antibiotics. So that's kind of like a feedback to you are using antibiotics in the healthcare setting. And that's actually also playing a role into what ends up in the environment. So yeah, it is connected. And that's even more true in countries where you have poor treatment of that hospital waste. So a lot of times you might have hospital waste ending up directly into a river, which actually means that you can have at the discharge site pretty high concentrations of antibiotics. So Absolutely. I mean, it's all connected. But I think that's this it's all connected thing is permeating through the entire resistance research community, actually. And my personal feeling is that the barriers are becoming smaller and smaller. It's much more a question of, oh, how do we prioritize between these two different important questions? Mm -hmm. It's good to hear that uh, things are getting better <laughs> in that regard. We tend to ask all our interviewees here to explain what do you think is more misunderstood about your field? And this, we ask it in the way that when you try to convey information that is very within either bioinformatics or studying AMR in the environment and you try to explain it to someone that is outside, that it's difficult to grasp or it's misunderstood and, and you find resistance there to, to get through. This is sort of still communicating to other people with a scientific background, at least. Or not, because it could be yeah, also that, you know, people think bioinformaticians are uh, always in front of a computer and never see oh, a biological sample <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> no, no, seriously, I, if, if, if I start by antibiotic resistance, the m most common misconception, and I realized this when uh, starting uh, putting my, my kids to preschool and meeting other parents, which are like really intelligent people, and still the most common question is, some variant of, oh, when I take antibiotic, do I get resistant? Mm. And you have that, no, 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 wait, uh, the bacteria get resistant. And they are like, oh, so the bacteria, how does that work? So, I mean, even that, I mean, as scientists, we have sort of failed here because the general public, a lot of people have the idea that you as a person become resistant. Mm. It has nothing to do with the bacteria. So that's, that's one thing. And I mean, in Sweden, we have still come pretty far with disseminating this knowledge. I mean, we have more work to do in terms of communicating to the general public. Then if I'm going to be a little bit more specific, I mean, talking more within the field of antibiotic resistance, but more speaking about the environment, one thing that has been repeated from the environmental people for a very long time is how 
sewage treatment plants would be this big hotspot for resistance where you have a lot of selection for resistant bacteria and they release lots of resistant bacteria into the environment. And of course, that sort of depends on what your relative definition of a lot, what that is. <laughs> um, but I mean, from everything I've seen, sewage treatment plants in the Western world are pretty efficient at removing bacteria, both resistant and non-resistant. They don't specifically remove resistant bacteria, but it's a pretty efficient process. And if you compare this to the release of raw sewage that is completely untreated, which is occurring in most part of the world, actually, the problem with the little remaining resistance from Western treatment plants is exceedingly small. And I think all the money and all the effort we put in into improving this last little tiny bit of a percent of removing bacteria from treatment plants would be so much better spent just building out any kind of treatment infrastructure in, say, low-income countries. So I, I think there's a very local bias here where we, where we see our own problems, but we don't really see the forest for the trees, in a yeah, way. The, the bigger picture on how yeah. our related to what is happening somewhere else is nothing. And it's also, it's also about the willingness of intervening, of course. I mean, of course, we would like to see Swedish tax money being reinvested in Swedish infrastructure. But if you think about it in a global point of view and long-term prospect for managing antibiotic resistance, it would be smarter to send it somewhere else and build that treatment infrastructure where none is found at the moment. Yeah, so system thinking and more yeah. because we are all connected in, in a, and we but live in a global world. It's not we are vacuum here in Sweden and nothing else affects us. Definitely. But it is hard. I mean, I, I, as a Swedish taxpayer, I also think that the money I <laughs> the money I pay should largely go to build up the Swedish infrastructure. It makes sense to think that way. Mm. So I, I see why it's hard. But just from a purely scientific point of view, <laughs> This is really one of those times where we get to thinking the wrong way. Mm. Well, Johan, we are really happy to have you here. And as a last thing, uh, would you like to tell something else to our audience that we didn't cover through or that you would like them to know about? No, I, I mean, I, I think we've been having a very good discussion. I, uh, I very much enjoy this. And I think it's a, it's a great initiative with this podcast, by the way, talking again about uh, disseminating knowledge. So uh, I, I don't think I have a, anything particular to add, but uh, I would like to say, Thank you to everyone who uh, yes. have been involved in inviting me. Here. And if anybody is interested in learning a little bit more about your projects, we are going to leave a link to your website, which is pretty comprehensive, and there is a lot of uh, material there for them to look through. Thank you so much for being with us, and good luck with all the research going and with uh, setting up this uh, platform, definitely. Thank you very much. Bye. Hey, everyone. Welcome back from the interview. Uh, so, like usually, we're going to do a rundown of the interview and talk about some things that we found worth talking a little bit more about and explaining. But of course, first, I would like to hear your thoughts, Jenny, on what we've been talking with Johan. So I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I say this all the time, too, but it was nice to finally hear the perspective from like the environmental side of antibiotic resistance. And like you said in the interview, this is something we've talked about before, that it's important but we haven't really gotten the chance to talk to somebody that really works with it a lot. So it was nice. I mean, I heard his talk too, and it was very interesting to see how they put everything in perspective. And personally, I thought this whole idea of, you know, it's a very microbial centric perspective of not looking at the human effect of everything, but what these bacteria are exposed to affect their ecology and how they grow and how they interact with other microbes and, and that sort of thing. So I thought it was 
a different approach than what we've heard a lot of the other times that we've talked to people, but I really liked it. And it's a useful perspective. Yeah, I'm really hoping that our listeners uh, can get to understand a little bit more how the environment actually is important in the bigger scheme of antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance, but how the perspectives that involve the environment are a little bit different than when we talk about the human health. And also I find that through the interview and when I asked him, you know, like, uh, have you had any particular challenges talking about the environment to other researchers in in this area in AMR and he says that by default the people working more in the animal health sector veterinary sector are already pretty aware or comfortable with acknowledging that the environment is a big part of it whereas the clinical people and the human side are kind of warming up to it or getting to to really find this connection and and as I said, this is a bit of a philosophical talk about like why is it that the animal health people and the animal researchers or AMR researcher-oriented work are more aware of this connection. And it's like we human as a species have actually pulled ourselves pretty much away from the environment. Like we, yeah. we live in the environment because we all live in the same environment, right? The animals, the humans, but we kind of have really alienated ourselves from how these interactions might be important. So mm-hmm. I, I think this is a good example how animals and environment are still having this strong connection, whereas we have really distanciated ourselves from mm-hmm. that. And and this shows it, so, so to speak. And I think in, like, especially if you work, I mean, I've personally focused a lot more on the medical human side of antibiotic resistance. You tend to kind of get stuck on this whole human centric perspective of like it what does it mean for us? What does it mean here? And like, I think it comes a little bit more naturally when you're thinking about veterinary science and ecology and the the environment and all these sorts of things to think a little bit more broader, like network-based, that it's not just about us and it's not about how we're affected. This holistic approach of things. Exactly. (laughs) Even though, I mean, of course, a lot of it, and even you guys talked about that it comes back to, okay, well, what can we do to help us is kind of a natural way to look at it because we're looking at this problematic issue and everything like that. But I still think it was, it's just really useful to kind of see how other people think about it and how you can broaden this network of thought. Yeah, I mean, in the end, if you think about like AMR resistance wouldn't be a problem if there is not an individual that gets affected by a resistance strain, right? Resistance yeah. strains being in the environment, living in their communities as resistance, it's nothing. It's not really per se a problem, right? It's only when it comes in contact with the health yeah. aspect. Or at least that... not a problem that we would focus so much on, that we would pay so yeah. much money to try to solve, you know, exactly. if we're getting down to the nitty gritty bit of it. But yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also kind of liked, and I think this might come from the same sort of thing where we're talking about, you know, people might ask why is it important for an environmental perspective on AMR? Well, people maybe don't ask that same question in medical fields. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the group that uh, Dr. Anson Palma works in has a very pragmatic approach to how to deal with this. Like they're looking at things and how do we apply new research ideas? How do we apply new things that we can do about the problem into this framework and then make it modular so that, mm-hmm. you know, you can afford, like if you can't afford to do all of it, which nobody can, obviously we're in a world where you have limited resources, then we take something we can do and it's better than nothing. And I think that's not something that we often talk about in human health, 
a lot, mm -hmm. but I think it was a very pragmatic and reasonable approach and maybe something we should think about more. Yeah, because what we we said, like, we cannot do everything, but it's better if we are able to find this small thing that we can actually do and that will yeah. have an effort. So let's let's try to to analyze how the different parts might actually play a role instead of saying, oh, there's a lot that we could do, but we cannot do it all. Let's just drop yeah. the idea. And especially, I mean, it sounds like a lot of this is often based on things that already exist. Like you brought up the example of uh, monitoring water quality. Mm -hmm. I know you can look at there and I mean that's a makes complete sense when he says it that you know it's okay we can add on like a little thing it's not that it's not going to be without hesitation people are going to push back that maybe it's still expensive to do or not necessary or what's the best thing to do but just the thought process of thinking about it from that way that we make we adapt something that we already do that we already have and make it easy to can utilize it yourself like a, a new country another country or a different area or a different field can utilize that method mm -hmm. for themselves. There was also a few uh, methods that I think that you guys discussed that might be interesting to talk a little bit more about, because one of the interesting ideas here with Dr. Binks-Lopanma's work is that it has a lot of a bioinformatics side to it, but there's also a lot of what we call wet labs. Yeah, so we, as, as in the previous episode, we just had last month, that it was all focused like on bioinformatics. So you basically have approaches where you look at the genetic content or whatever you are looking into, and then ask for questions and look for answers in that genetic content. They have a big, big part that is also bioinformatics, but they're also doing things that are more experimental based, not only in silico, it's more in, in vivo, as we call it, or the, actually working with the microbiology part of it. Yeah. So there's a couple of uh, methods that you guys discussed that I wanted to kind of bring up. So there's qPCR, culturing, uh, functional metagenomics, and then kind of comparing this to bioinformatics. Mm -hmm. So if we look at qPCR, it's basically comparing like the quantity of amount of genes or sometimes how it's expressed also if you're going at a different level um, compared to other things. Yeah, so you would you would actually have your sample of the environmental, whatever it is, and then mm -hmm. you want to look for a specific gene, a specific thing that you know it might be present in the community, and then you use this technique to know how much of that there is. Yeah. So it's like more like a quantitative, of course, abundance approach to know is this present in very little amounts, nothing at all, or a lot. Yeah. And then uh, there's culturing. So that's just a word we use in general for how you you know, grow microbes in a lab. In this case, bacteria is a lot of what they're looking at. So can you grow these bacteria in a lab? Do they seem affected by antibiotics? Um, that sort of thing. It's it's the complicated in many cases because there's a lot of things that we can't grow in a lab. I think it's predicted. I was going to say, is it 1% or 10%? I can't yeah, I think remember. It's one, I think it's 1%. Maybe. Yeah, it's, but it's this very small fraction of the total that we can actually yeah. grow in a lab under standard lab conditions that we use. So culturing doesn't catch everything, but if you culture something, you can learn a lot more about it. Mm -hmm. But then the, the problem of culturing as an approach to understand basically life around us and microbe life around us, then is when metagenomics came into play, which is yeah. like, okay, if we cannot culture these specimens in the samples, we can maybe read and see what those organisms are by looking at the DNA in the sample. And yeah. that's metagenomics, basically. Yeah. And then we, I mean, if we jump into functional metagenomics, which is kind of like a mix of these things, you're basically using that metagenomic data. So just all the genetic information that you got from looking at like what's here 
And then you can kind of try to determine, okay, so this genetic material, what does it mean? For example, you can take, this seems to be a resistance gene, or this seems to be a descendant of a resistance gene. Can we copy this and put it into something that we can grow in the lab and see if it has an effect? And study it, yes. And study it more in detail and more practically. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different ways to do that kind of functional metagenomics. This is just an example, but it's adding more information to what you already have, you know? You have this genetic information, but there's limits to that. And there's, of course, limits to culturing and molecular methods. But combining these two is really useful. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like we were talking some episodes back about diagnostic tools and how just genomic or genetic diagnostic tools don't really tell you the whole story because it could be that there is some genetic element present, but the effect that it actually has in the real organism is different. So yeah. this functional metagenomics is like you're looking at this genetic material in the pool, but you want to know, does it actually do something? Does it yeah. do what we think it's doing? So you take that piece of of genetic material and you put it into an organism that you can work with in the lab. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the approach. And it's really, as you said, beautiful how they mix these more theoretical bioinformatic approaches into actual experiments that would give you more concrete answers. Yeah. And it's just a really nice way to look at it of, you know, I've said that like six times this episode, but I like the way they do things here, that it's uh, combining the best of what we can have in both senses and like mm -hmm. acknowledging the limitations of all methods, mm -hmm. but taking what you can get out of it. You know, mm -hmm. it's also pragmatic. There was one more thing that we wanted to talk about mm -hmm. that came up towards the end of your interview. So uh, Dr. Banks-Panman mentioned something about uh, spraying apple orchards with streptomycin. And this is just kind of to show how important it is that we really consider the environmental impacts of antibiotics being spread the way they are. An, an example of that in the US in 2019, there was a big debate, and I think it passed, to allow for the spraying of antibiotics on orange groves. And those antibiotics would be streptomycin and oxytetracycline. And this was basically just rampant spraying of antibiotics onto agricultural fields without really a lot of evidence that it works. Yeah. So when you brought up this to me, I was like, Wait, what? Like, what was my first reaction? Like, yeah. wh what are you talking about? Like, you mean like that to allow it or to ban it? It's like, yeah, no, you no, asked no, me no, like, oh, so they banned it? It's like, no, no, that this is a newly allowed thing. <laughs> and I'm like, how? Like, and then the next question, of course, okay, so would this actually work? Like, would yeah. they actually get the, re the spectrum result, which is reducing the amount of trees that would die and not produce mm -hmm. oranges? And apparently not. It's not yeah. really seen that just spraying this thing in on top of them is actually have the desired effect but it's also the kind of thing of from my understanding and i might have fully misunderstood this but this kind of past partially leaning on the fact that we don't have a lot of proof that it's a negative thing to do this mm -hmm. like we, there wasn't a lot of evidence that doing this would cause problems they're basically just like well we need to do something so we might as well try this even though it doesn't maybe doesn't work and it's not going to have that much of a negative impact. And I think this is one of the things we're like, we're missing that research that tells us if this has a negative impact, because it didn't really feel like there's evidence that it doesn't have negative impact either. It just hasn't really been studied well. Yeah. And it kind of ties into, you know, maybe it doesn't lead to increased resistance for us and humans. But like Dr. Banks and Palma pointed out, you know, this might vastly affect the uh, microbial ecology. 
which I mean, knowing what we do know about how all this works, it would probably have, I, it feels like we don't learn anything. Like this reminds me, you know, when we are growing up uh, and we study science about the story of the DET. Yeah. Because, you know, the DET was like, mm -hmm. yeah, let's, this, this, we have this compound that it does this. So let's use it in this way because we are going to increase production. And then here comes someone with their silent sprint book saying, hey, using this is actually having a huge impact in this other part. Like, and I, I get that there is this urgency, right? Like yeah. the, the research is slow. Like, actually, I want you guys at home that are listening to this to think about the timescales of this kind of scientific uh, quest, right? The, Johan, he actually mentioned very superficially saying like, yeah, well, but well, in environmental science or environmental aspects of AMR it's something very new it's only been on the past 10-15 years and yeah you know 10-15 years is a long time that's right as you or I have been in science I mean we haven't been around that long in this <laughs> exactly so so what I want to say is like I understand that sometimes things might be hard to wait for hard scientific evidence to be taking decisions on them and now with the pandemic we're going through it's a beautiful example of how all these timelines science politics society comes all together and and we decide how to work through things yeah. i understand that the timelines of it's difficult to put it together but come on like can we maybe learn from the things that have happened before yeah and <sighs> just to think of like okay sometimes you've got to make a decision based on a very small amount of information because that's all you've got and you just have to and that sucks and that's kind of the situation we're in right now as a world is that we're making very serious decisions based on very little information while trying to desperately get as much information as possible mm -hmm. but when it doesn't need to go that fast yeah and it, it can definitely be worth it to wait a little bit and find out more or at least use caution in the beginning and kind of try to look for flaws that might occur I wonder in this case of bringing up this idea that using antibiotics in the orange orchards would actually have a positive effect or would be the or would be the answer to the problem they are having. Yeah. I wonder how much effort was actually put into seeing what consequences mm. this will have rather than only you know science you are science should not be doing the experiments that you need to to prove your point, right? Like you should actually be looking both at what could be making it work and what could not make it work. Yeah. You have to kind of go into it with the idea of, can I knock down my own theory or can I knock okay. down my own idea? Can I prove that my own idea is bad? I mean, that's, that's the whole scientific uh, method, right? Supposed it to be. should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's just a really good example of why this is something that we need to focus on now. It's not like a historical thing that we used to do this. This is something that's being approved now. Yeah, as we have speak. pretty big mm. effects. We can leave some uh, other resources if you want to re read more about that specific uh, issue with the orange groves in the US. We'll leave a, we will leave a couple of links a couple in the links. Oh, As no. well as a link to you on Pinkton Palmas website. Oh, definitely. There's a lot of resources yeah. there. And uh, we have to say that actually Johan Bengtsson's Palmes Lab has just recently started a podcast. It's a little bit more on the scientific side than we are, but what they are going to do is to have basically their journal clubs in podcast format. So they will sit down and they just talk about some papers that have been recently published and, and just go run through them and see what's the good things about them, what are the pitfalls about them. So all this, uh, so very, we wish them a lot of luck in their podcasting uh, journey. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
But all right, with that, we should probably move on to the news. Yes, news. That's one of my favorite sections of this podcast. Let's go <laughs> to them. See you. Welcome back, everyone. Today in the news section, actually, we are going to be a bit UAC-centric. <laughs> At least Uppsala-centric. <laughs> yeah, Uppsala-centric, because we're going to cover a couple of very recent published articles by two different PhD students that are doing their research within the Uppsala Antibiotics Center. Uh, they are diametrically opposite and different articles, but they're both equally interesting and necessary to the field studies. So first, we're going to talk about an uh, article published by our PhD student, Victor Rognos, and he has published this article in the journal Clinical Microbiology and Infection, and it was accepted on March 15th of this year. His area of studies is actually pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, and the article has the title of Population Pharmacokinetics of Cholestine and the Relation to Survival in Critically Ill Patients Infected with Cholestine-Susceptible and Carbapenem-Resistant Bacteria. This is a bit of a long title for the... <laughs> a bit heavy. Yeah, but we are going to run through a little bit of the basics of this kind of work. So first of all, what is pharmacokinetics, right? It's right there in the title. And pharmacokinetics is actually the study of what happens to a substance when it's given to a living organism from the very moment of administering this substance till the moment that is cleared out from the body, right? This will happen through a series of chemical reactions and chemical metabolism. And it's particularly interesting in the case of drugs like cholestine. In this case, it's an antibiotic cholestine because this drug is not just given as the active principle. So that means that the patient is actually given a drug a chemical that needs to be metabolized in certain ways in the body to make the active principle that is actually able to do what we want it to do, in this case, kill the bug, and then is cleared out by the body. It is a particular interest to study pharmacokinetics in cholestine because cholestine is one of these last line resort antibiotics that is known to have high side effects and be quite bad for the person that is taking it. So it's only used when there is nothing else that can be used to try to cure the infection and save the patient. So in this case, it's even more interesting to understand how does the body take on the drug, work with the drug and eliminates the drug since it's potentially a toxic thing that is going to be in the body at the same time as we wanted to save the, the patient and cure it. So yeah, so this article is looking into the pharmacokinetics of cholestine. And Jenny, can you maybe tell us a little bit about what they found? What are the main findings of this was? Yeah, so in general, I mean, this is part of a larger project, for, which is an EU-funded project called the IDA project, looking at the clinical effectiveness of old off-label drugs. So colistin is a really old antibiotic that we've had for a long time. It was, from what I understand, it was kind of put on the shelf because of all the toxicity issues and all the problems with it. But it's been used now because there's an increasing emergence of antibiotic resistance and colistin tends to work with these drugs that are really resistant to a lot of other first-line things. Like in this case, we're talking about carbapenem resistance. And carbapenems are, tend to be used in these last line cases if possible, but if that's not an option, you've got to find something else. The point of the project is kind of to try to fill in these gaps that we have in our knowledge about colistin or other drugs, but in this case, colistin, to say, okay, what's actually happening in the patients? How much drugs do we actually need to give? How can we optimize this so that we minimize that? Because the range is pretty small here between concentrations of the drug that kill the bug and 
concentrations of the drug that cause a lot of issues in the patients, especially if the patient's already sick, which they tend to be severely sick in these cases. It's been seen before that there is a huge variation in the outcomes and the concentrations of this drug within the different patients that are given. So on top of everything, colicin is not very used. Therefore, there's not much data to be working with. And there is this very small window of appropriate concentration within the body. So all this actually makes it very important to gather knowledge around it to be able to use the drug in the best way that we can. So one of the things they were looking at was basically a marker of kidney function, which is creatinine clearance, and looking at how the kidney function of the patient can affect the levels of antibiotic available in the body, or like the the blood concentration, basically, of the antibiotic. So one of the findings that they have is that the protocols that are in place for patients with low kidney function seem to be appropriate and compensate for the fact that there's a lower clearance of the drug. So the levels are about the same as slightly higher kidney function. When there's really high kidney function, then we're maybe looking at cases where the antibiotic is cleared out of the body more and the concentration goes down. But all in all, except for the really high cases of kidney function, what they find is that this concentration of antibiotic in the blood is at or above the clinical breakpoint for resistance to colistin. So what they actually found in general is that it's a little bit higher than that concentration, but it does seem to be, you know, maintained above that, which is good. That's part of what we want. And now knowing that in those patients, the amount of cholestine in the body, it's theoretically at a level that should be working to kill the bug. Now, the next question is, are patients dying because they might have too much uh, cholestine because we know that cholestine can actually be toxic or maybe the mortality can actually be linked to some other variables that put the patient in hazard of death. And what they found here is that actually two main things relate very well with the probability of death. One of them, it's intrinsic to the patient, is how old the patient is and how well of the condition the patient had, their vital functions, how good they were when they were needed for treatment. And the other one is actually what bacteria they were infected with, being a more risky thing to be infected with acinetobacter and pseudomonas than it was for the Klebsiella patients. So in general, I think this study really kind of showed, you know, for one thing, it's filling a lot of gaps. They're, they're basically saying also that we didn't see as much toxicity maybe or as much of an effect of the colistin as maybe was expected. But they also point out that this study was done looking at blood concentrations and over half the patients in the study, the trial, actually had pneumonia. So we're not, we still haven't really looked at the bioavailability in the lungs, like how much of the drug is actually available in the lungs. Is there something causing a problem there? But it's still answering some unknowns. Yeah, so this part that you just mentioned would actually be covered by integrating the pharmacodynamics part of the science into it, right? We are looking at how the body takes on and clears the drug, and then the pharmacodynamics would actually be looking, okay, how much of that drug is actually getting to the site of infection, and how much is it working in the place where it should be working, etc. And they also pointed out, of course, that they are looking into the MIC values that were validated in a thigh model in mice which means that maybe the concentrations or the MICs are not going to be the same when we're looking at systemic infections. But overall, it is, of course, needed to look into these things. And the way that we can look into the reality of using colistin is not going to be the same as the models we're doing in the lab with the mice. So this was a very good addition to the body of knowledge about colistin. And whether or not we need this data, because as, as bugs get more resistance, 
to different antibiotics, we are going to start needing to use this last line. And the more information we have about how to reduce the risks that might come with using this drug, the better. So, yeah. And this is really a good stepping stone for working on individualized treatment situations so that they point out that, you know, you can use a lot of the things they looked at here uh, and kind of compare it to see, okay, what's best for this patient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful for, you know, where we're going now with needing to treat more patients with this drug. Especially in settings like this, where this is a drug you are going to use in hospitalized patients that are heavily monitorized and that you are able to check individually how the drug is taken on, what concentrations are, yeah. are, are working. So it's really good that these, these things are looked into. Yeah. If we move into the next paper, it's very different. Yes, very different. So can you introduce us to the article, Jenny? Uh, yeah. So this is a paper in Lancet Global Health. Uh, called Trends in Reported Antibiotic Use Among Children Under Five Years of Age with Fever, Diarrhea, or Cough with Fast or Difficult Breathing Across Low-Income and Middle-Income Countries in 2005 to 2017, a systematic analysis of 132 national surveys from 73 countries. So also a very long title, but uh, you can basically understand it. So this paper was published, uh, was accepted in May of June 2020 and will be in the June issue of Lancet Global Health. Yeah, and this paper was actually published by another of our PhD students at UAC, uh, Bemisola Albert brown And yeah, we're very happy that she's uh, ongoing with her studies. But like I said, from the title, you can kind of tell what it... So they're looking at these national surveys of how much antibiotics are being used, like asking caregivers directly how when antibiotics have been used in young children in low and middle income countries, because in part, uh, we've seen before that, you know, the increase maybe in use is being driven by low middle income countries. However, it's hard to understand exactly how much antibiotics are being used in these settings because there's more informal medical situations where maybe antibiotics are sold over the counter or shared or in general, just not in high income countries, they tend to be prescribed and controlled in a different way and it's easier to track, but that's not the case everywhere. And looking at just how many antibiotics are prescribed in low and middle income countries may not give an accurate picture. So here, what they're trying to do is kind of compensate for that by just asking what's been used, basically. Yeah. So in general terms, getting this kind of information about the real use of antibiotics is very important. And in particular from low and middle income countries, because low and middle income countries are at particular risk of higher rates of antibiotic resistance, not only because they tend to have more infectious diseases prevalence, but also because the sanitary conditions are not optimal. And there is, as you said, a lot of over-the-counter sales, informal use of antibiotics. So it's not enough with just looking into what's given in the hospitals or what is actually sold because these are other ways to look into antibiotic use like and another way to do it is like they have done it here which is actually using survey data that is directly done in households and tries to be as unbiased as possible but there's always biases that can happen the same as there are some shortcomings in the other way of looking at this data this also can have some biases Mm -hmm. especially complementary to each other in many cases yeah kinds of studies so the biases in this kind of data are generally related to just forgetting about it. Like yeah. how, how this works is like there is a, a person that is doing the survey, he goes to a household and he talks to the caregiver and asks a series of questions that relate to the past two weeks. And they try to gather that information. Like has your children under five years of age been sick? What kind of symptoms have you sought? Any sort of help for those symptoms? And have you treated those symptoms in any way? And then try to get mm-hmm. the data. 
And this is basically what Bemisola and the other authors have worked with in this yeah. really big survey across a lot of different countries and a lot of different surveys. So, yeah, I mean, 73 countries covered is impressive. It's actually trying to cover all the different areas that are uh, categorized by WHO depending on the income of the country. Um, yeah. So what were the main findings of the study? Well, what they, the overall finding and main meat of the paper is that there has been a steady increase in antibiotic consumption in low and middle income countries from 2005 to 2017. And what they see is that this increase, this global increase, It's driven mostly by the lowest income countries increase in antibiotic uh, use, but that the antibiotic use in those low income countries is still the lowest of all the countries that they look into. This means that even though the change between 2005 and 2017 has been the highest in the lowest income countries, it still is not as much as is consumed in the middle income countries that are compared to especially the upper middle income countries they see. Exactly. Yeah. And it seems it was also a bit split between regions. So the WHO regions of the, how you, how you divide up the globe into these regions. Mm -hmm. uh, certain regions had a higher increase, and, mm -hmm. but they were also still had the lowest like total consumption, even though the increase is the greatest. Uh, and this was in Africa and Southeast Asia where mm -hmm. they saw this effect. But of course, it's very difficult to actually make overall or average uh, assumptions of this data because the regional differences, as we always talk here, they are huge. Yeah. So that's why also this further division between regions can actually give us some idea of how the different trends might actually be working on. Yeah. And they mentioned this as uh, this, there are a few shortfalls with looking at the data in this way. I mean, they don't know, they can't really say if these were overprescriptions or misprescribed things or you know misused antibiotics because they don't know what was causing the disease. I mean, they're, they're talking about symptoms. So this study, this article is not really looking into analyzing if this increase in antibiotic consumption means that is an increase in misuse of antibiotics exactly. as well, because they are not really looking into what it is that the kids had when they were given the antibiotic, even if they finished their course of antibiotic or what kind of antibiotic they were given. So yeah. this is basically just raw data saying there is more consumption in 2017 than there was in 2005 for all these countries. And then what does that mean and if it's actually something that is a good thing or is a bad thing it's beyond the scope of this yeah. one could argue that an increase in antibiotic consumption in these countries is actually a good thing when we've been talking for so long that there is a lack of access to antibiotics in these countries yeah. and also of course we can possibly safely assume that a lot of these antibiotic courses maybe we're not needing should we actually have a way to test for what disease the kids were having. But in these contexts, it's very difficult to do that. There is no diagnostic tools. So of course, what we want is that there are things available to be given to the kids so we can avoid possible higher mortality throughout yeah. this, uh, this cohort of patients. Yeah, they even point out in the article, and I think it's very important that, I mean, in many, in some of these places where there wasn't seen increase in antibiotic consumption, Then we see in those places, the WHO guidelines are more lenient to giving antibiotics because there aren't diagnostics that are reliable. There isn't the infrastructure available to really determine if the antibiotics are needed or not. But you don't want to risk a child's life. It's basically what they're saying. They, it can be high mm -hmm. risk situations. 
So it's not necessarily that it's wrong that they're giving these antibiotics or that they're taking these antibiotics. It's just a matter of what is available in these different countries. And then I think that kind of pushes us into the field of, okay, well, how can we improve the situation? What what needs to be done in those countries to improve the quality of the healthcare, the healthcare infrastructure, availability of diagnostics? And this is also a first approximation or kind of the first looked into this kind of uh, use data and then of course mm. one can go even a little bit further and then once you have this data you can divide the data in different ways here they are looking just at the country economic situation yeah. but they are not looking into demographics are the people that live in certain parts of the country getting more or less antibiotics than others which will actually then indicate maybe what are the factors that play a role into access or yeah. excess of antibiotics or the education of the household, etc. But I did find it interesting as well that they actually didn't see an increase because they look at like, they actually separate these uh, symptoms that they're looking at. So they're looking at diarrhea, they're looking at fever, and they're looking at the cough with the faster, difficult breathing as three separate things uh, to some degree. And this increase, they only actually see in the fever and the cough, not mm-hmm. with diarrheal disease, which uh, because a lot of diarrheal disease cases aren't actually something that should be treated with antibiotics. And it also correlates with some of the data that they've been seeing in sales and uh, hospital use, etc. So um, overall, <laughs> really, really good the, that this was published. And I know for a fact that the that the data from this study is also going to be based for future studies, uh, looking into a bit more in-depth aspects of it. And yeah, I hope you guys have gotten a little bit of an insight into why it's important that we look into individual antibiotic use in overall the whole world, but why it's more difficult to do it in low medical countries and what it is that has been seen for the past 12 years, yeah. Uh, and both of these articles are open access articles, so you can get a lot more information from them as well as if you want. Uh, we're just giving short run-throughs mm-hmm. of them. There's plenty of information there. Uh, but we also wanted to mention just briefly a third article, which is also from a UAC PhD student. Yes, this kind of it was slipped through the midst of a lot of news and things that were going on at the center. But another of our PhD students, Petra Virtani, she published uh, her first article uh, a year ago, actually now. Uh, it was published in March 2019. And it's looking into contact-dependent growth inhibition, which is a really cool system. I'm not sure if we have talked about it before in the in the podcast. I think Don't we think might we have. have. We did have an interview with Sophie Helene on toxin-antitoxin systems, which is a little bit related to contact-dependent growth inhibition. But uh, what she's been looking into is a specific type of contact-dependent inhibition system that is able to allow toxin delivery between different species of the Enterobacteriaceae family. So it means that you could put two different bacteria of Enterobacteriaceae family, for example, very well-known E. coli and Salmonella. And this type of CDI system is able to deliver toxins from one species to another. This is a thing that's super interesting because it opens the possibility of different type of treatments. Like if you are able to create a bacterial strain, they can do targeted delivery of toxins to another species. So you could potentially use it as an alternative type of treatment. You could also potentially use it as a probiotic, right? Because if you are able to have bacteria already living in your gut, for example, that have this type of system and are able to fight off potential new bacteria that can come and 
try to colonize, uh, for example, like a bad diarrheal uh, enterobacterial strain. That can also be used in that way. So in this first article, she was just describing that the system exists, that this system actually works cross species. Mm -hmm. um, further applications of these are going to come down the line. That's yeah. for sure. We're going to leave the link to that article as well, in case you're interested to read in a little bit more. We're not going to go more in detail, but I suggest that if you can, you can always check it out. Mm -hmm. And it's it's more detailed I would say microbiology, how the bacteria work and how the system works in the bacteria, but it's super interesting. So if you're interested in that, then I de definitely recommend that you take a look at it. Yeah, this is also open access, so you can have access to the full PDF. And it was published in Molecular Microbiology Journal. It's nice to have so many open access articles. Yeah, just a really little, nice little, little thing to throw in there. It's nice to see that a lot of articles are open access. Very happy about that. And with this, we are done for this month. We wish you a very nice month of June. Hopefully, summery feelings all around. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, everybody's still staying safe and healthy. Well, when I say summery feelings, I'm always being very uh, North Hemisphere-centric <laughs> because <laughs> in the Southern Hemisphere, if anybody's listening to us from there. Um, yeah. But yeah, here in Sweden, the spring is coming to a full... Uh, representation well, summer kind of hit us now so we're pretty happy here yeah but uh, I, I call it spring you know <laughs> yeah you're from spain <laughs> <laughs> it's really good thank you everybody and see you back next month see you for more information about the Uppsala antibiotic center please visit our website you can find a link in the episode notes you can also follow us in twitter our handle is uac underscore uu this episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>